Code Fund Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. What does it mean? How do we define it? How do we get there? Where is there? All the questions all the time. Today, we have all of the panelists on. We have me, Richard, and then Eric. Hey, y'all. Justin. Howdy ho. Pia. Hello, friends. And Gunner. Hello. And we have a very special guest today, one of my favorite voices in the open source scene, Kyle Mitchell. Hello. Kyle is an independent legal attorney uh, based out of Oakland. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm all right. Awesome. Has working remotely affected you in any significant way so far? Oh, man. I mean, on the rank order, I'm not, I'm not hardly the most affected. But yeah, of course, in, in little ways. Less certainly than others are dealing with. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. So focusing on, on what you do, you have a really awesome blog where you talk a lot about open source. I think one of the main topics of the blog that you talk about is a thing called License Zero. Can you describe what that is? Sure. So License Zero brings into software a model of paying for and getting paid for creative work that is really common in nearly any other creative industry. In software specifically, it's sometimes known as dual licensing. Sometimes it's known as selling exceptions. I call it public-private licensing. Basically, it's a model where you choose an open license that requires sharing alike. So in software, we know this these licenses by names like GPL or AGPL or MPL. Licensier has produced some new ones that are stronger. But overall, the picture is, hey, listen, if you're willing to share what you build with my work alike, or you're willing to use it, but only non-commercially, there's one of two choices there. That's fine. Do what you want to do. I'm going to work in the open. I'm going to work on GitHub or wherever I like to work. But if you can't meet those requirements, if you want to take my library and build a closed product out of it, if you want to use my development tool and use it to develop a closed service. If I've offered an application, let's say an image editor on non-commercial terms and you want to use it at work, well, then you can go and buy a license to do that. So in much the way that folks in our industry and other industries are used to licensing assets for games or B-roll or stock footage or background music that may be available for free for personal use or non-commercial use, but paying for other uses, Licensure brings that model to software. And in a specific way that's designed to work for projects that have a lot of dependencies. Is this an OSI approved license? So the uh, license zero has two choices of what we call the public license, which you could think of as the free license. That's the one that uh, you'll stumble on if you look in the license file of repository on, on GitHub, for example. And there are two options there that are currently supported. One is a, a non-commercial license, which we call Prosperity. And it comes with a free trial and other things. But uh, while there's a lot of debate about what's inside or outside the boundaries of open source or free software, or whether those are different, I think historically, it's fair to say that non-commercial licenses like that have not been considered open as in open source over time. So that option is not open source, so to speak. 
On the other hand, the second option is a license that we call parity, which in my mind is really an extension and maybe you know more like maintenance work on licensing tradition that goes back to the GPLs in particular. Uh, how does parity differ from those licenses? Well, that's a longer conversation than maybe anybody wants to get into. But long story short, AGPL jumped a gap in GPL. It said if you use this code to create a service and you change that service and one of the things, then you need to share alike. And parity goes an extra step. It jumps the gap to developer tools. So if I've written, let's say, standard JS, uh, a linter for JavaScript, or if I've written a, a bundler like uh, Webpack or Browserify, even using the AGPL there wouldn't require sharing back. If you built a web app with Browserify and Browserify were under parity, then you wouldn't have to share anything back. You could make that and hand it to a client or keep it closed source, whatever you wanted to do. Uh, I took a an early draft of the license that has now become parity to OSI and proposed it for approval and made many of the analogies and the arguments that you've heard already, certainly heard some from the other side. I don't know that we want to get into my big conversation about that process, at least that process as it existed or frankly didn't exist when I went through it. The result of that process, from my point of view, is I just walked away. I'm going to interrupt real quick. We're going to get into this because this is a very, very interesting topic when it comes to sustainability. There's Oh, a, great. Yeah. Yeah. We've had people on this podcast. We've had Josh Simmons from OSI. We've had, I think it was Giddy who had some issues with the with the, trying to get a license on there. So I'm just going to speak for all of us and say, please go into more detail because this is something that really, really affects sustainability. Yeah, I agree. And I, I am almost ready to agree that the two are insoluble, right? Now, is a license all of open source? No. Does it express everything that we expect or that we hope for from open source? No. And this idea that open source is a licensing question, first and foremost, and that that's the whole question is wrong. I don't think there's any conversation other than maybe really narrow conversations involving mostly lawyers like me, where that's a useful way to define open source and stop. So to, to give the lay of the land on the license that became parity, one, I, I can only give my own point of view. I'm not going to pretend that there is unanimity on this or that the people who disagree with me are all outliers or haven't done their homework. Some of them have. I have my frustrations with the process overall, which really may be irrelevant now. I, I'm no longer a part of that process. I understand that it's changing. I have some you know, glancing familiarity with how, but I'm no longer involved and I can't you know, really render an opinion on it now. But I can give my perspective and I can give the history. License Zero began with just one licensing choice, which was non-commercial. And that was really riffing off of Creative Commons. Folks may know Creative Commons is kind of the, the open source licensing for things that aren't software, right? If you want to put a video online and you want people to be able to remix it, or you want to put a music track online and let anyone run wild with it, use it as backing music, rap over it, you're going to end up using probably a Creative Commons license rather than an open source license. Open source licenses are for software, mostly occasionally documentation. Creative Commons pretty much reaches almost anything covered by copyright, which is a legal thing, but think art, music, film, television, the written word, that kind of thing. And Creative Commons has a non-commercial license. In fact, it has had for many years. And it's fairly popular. Now, depending on who you ask, it's you know, either the kind of fly in the ointment or the you know, it's the one license they, from Creative Commons they don't like, or it's just part of the menu. Uh, from my point of view, it was just part of the menu, and I wanted to see that kind of license for software. 
And that bootstraps this business model, which is, hey, follow my public terms for free. If you can't do that, pay me and I'll write you another license. I'll give you an exception so you can do that and you can support me. And that support is related to the value of what I've offered. So step one for licensure was say, hey, that's the model that's working in photography, in B-roll, in backing tracks, and all these other areas. Let's just port that over to software. And that meant porting Creative Commons non-commercial over to software, which I did in a kind of initially a very ham-handed and direct way, right? MVP, get it done. I had a lot of conversations, mostly sustainability conversations about that approach with a lot of good friends, including many here in, in Oakland. And a few of the best conversations I think I had were people who said, yeah, wow, this is really important. We've, we're glad you brought this up. I totally know about this from my media background, but I can't really go there because I'm not going to do anything that's not copyleft I, for whatever reason. Maybe that's philosophical, maybe that's practical, and there are practical reasons to choose copyleft. But it was kind of a, you know, I love this. I wish I could, but it, it's not yet there for me. This bridge, this last bridge hasn't been built. And that clicked in my mind immediately. Hey, this model exists for copyleft too. Some of the earliest business models were libraries or other tools that were available under GPL, but you could buy a commercial license to put it in a closed product or service, right? So that led to parity. But a lot of the people that I was really thinking about when I created and worked on Licensure initially were frankly the friends of mine who had been part of the initial wave of Node.js and the JavaScript community here in the Bay Area, specifically here in Oakland. But for whatever reason, uh, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not so much, had, have disappeared. They've been priced out. They've had to move on. They wouldn't take the job at Fang, one of the big companies, or you know any company. They wanted to stay independent, but they couldn't square that with this burst of energy and enthusiasm for no pay that they put in, basically turning Node.js into a thing. And a lot of those were development tool makers. Uh, many of them also do libraries. Some of them also do frameworks. Many do applications, especially for work. But one of the things that made that community blossom, in my experience, which was firsthand, first and foremost, was development tools. There was a real renaissance in development tools for the web, written in JavaScript, distributed mostly over NPM, run with Node.js. And when I said, okay, well, how do I cover those people? I mean, License Zero is in, in some ways kind of a mea culpa. It's kind of an apology. I can't be all those people's lawyers, right? I can't be negotiating all their deals, especially when they're just starting out and, you know, they're building up to the point where they can pay themselves. It's, you know, to say nothing of paying me. So in order to reach those people, I needed a, a copy left to share like license that would cover the work they were doing. Now you can slap GPL on a bundler or a minifier or a static analysis tool or a transpiler. And in the vast majority of cases, uh, it can just be ignored because the use case of that software doesn't trigger the obligation to share like under the license. And that's getting into the weeds. That's getting into legal weeds. But that's where I live in those legal weeds. And I saw that and I said, okay, well, the license doesn't exist yet, write it. So I wrote it. And I took it to OSI because basically I knew that there, for any new license, there was going to be a lot of conversation. There was going to be a social, socialization kind of process and there was going to be an analysis process. And instead of having that distributed, so to speak, now distributed is, has a nice connotation these days, but I guess we could also say duplicated across many different GitHub repos with a lot of individual developers who haven't gone into the legal weeds as I have trying to explain what was going on, I saw that that was going to come up the works. And I said, well, hey, is there an opportunity for me to take this someplace and have one conversation kind of on their behalf? Can I take this bullet for the team? And then that becomes an artifact that they can point back to when questions arise as they will inevitably. 
all over GitHub or all over the web. So that was really the motivation. That's where the license came from. The newness of it was, first and foremost, the idea that if you use a development tool, call it the linter is the easiest case, maybe. I think that's one that people have a lot of familiarity with, in particular from JavaScript, but now from Ruby with RuboCop and other. It's certainly a thing in the Rust ecosystem to do these automated checks. Hey, you forgot to define this variable. This is a code style violation and so on. Those are tremendously valuable tools. And they can be a real pain in the you-know-what to develop and especially to maintain over time. And the people who accidentally grab that bull by the horns end up developing expertise along the way. They get dragged along with it you know, over time and they become experts. And in some sense, yeah, we could all study up and, and learn how to do that. But that's a really big commitment. And we have these people already. It would be nice to be able to sustain and support them. But I couldn't really do this and serve the people that I had in mind by just telling them to use GPL or AGPL or MPL, the Mozilla public license, the Eclipse public license, any of the existing approved copyleft licenses that have been used that way in the past for different kinds of software, but not for development tools. So I think first and foremost, the initial, if I had to guess, and I can only project, this isn't my point of view, right? But if there was an immediate anxiety or incredulity response to the license that became parity, it was that, wait a minute, this is going where we haven't gone before. This is asking for share alike in a much stronger way than we've seen in a seriously drafted license. And I don't mean to downplay licenses that hackers have written on their own, but that have that combination of the technical and the legal perspective brought to bear on drafting, on implementation. So does that kind of set the stage a little bit? I'm, I'm trying to give the overall frame because there were many smaller conversations that kind of cropped up within that framework. But I think overall, that's the big picture. Yeah, I mean, that that answered my question for sure. And I learned a little bit more. Um, I want someone else from the panel to ask the next question so I don't monopolize. Pia? No. So maybe if you want to share with us, you know, what if some of the projects have had experience with this license and what it was like, any lessons that you've learned? Great. So I do lessons for me and then there are lessons for projects. You might better go to the folks who have adopted the license to figure out their point of view from them directly. But I can try to speak a little bit about both. The biggest surprise for me was, listen, I saw this license as essentially purpose-built for the business model. So use this license, run this business model. They're kind of a package in my mind. And that gave me you know, enough of a hypothetical situation where I could actually write the, the thing, right? It's nice to have a concrete use case in mind. What surprised me is how many early adopters didn't want to sell exceptions or commercial or closed-use licenses at all. They simply were building tools that had a developer tool component to them or, or were developer tools in general. And they wanted this same kind of share-alike rule for that work. And I was surprised by how many of those projects took outside contribution. I'm surprised just in general that there was really an appetite for those kind of terms for projects coming out of companies or coming out of startups, for example. That was not the, the use case. That was not the user base that I had in mind. But I fell into it myself. I ended up using it myself. So the server code, for licensezero.com, which runs, kind of automates the process. You can think of it like an app store, but for these dual licensed or public-private licensed projects. I wanted to make that available. I wanted to make it so that people could look at it, audit it if they wanted to. 
And I wanted to work that way, frankly. So I stuck it out there and I don't think it had any license on it at all. And I had this big to-do item that was kind of figure out licensing of your own code, which was a little embarrassing to have for a licensing company from a licensing lawyer. And it turned out that Parity was the fit for that as well. So what do I really want out of that? Well, you know, I don't mind if people run it themselves. I don't mind if people tweak it. I don't mind if people take bits of it. But what they take and what they do should stay in the open. And I suppose I could have picked an existing license that covers services. It's a web service fairly well. We, most of us have heard of AGPL, I'd imagine. Some of us may have heard of the open software license, OSL, which does a similar thing. And of course, in a slightly different way. But I realized that the simplicity of parity was worth something in and of itself. Just saying, hey, what you do with this, you have to share back. And there's no question about, is it a library? Did you distribute it? Static or dynamic linking? Are there bits of my code in the generated code that I made for you? Is it a service or is it an application? None of those questions were relevant for what I wanted. And none of them should have been relevant to the people looking at my code. So I ended up being a Parity user, even though I didn't really anticipate that at all. I think on the adopter side, and you know, not just my own experience, but also those looking to sell exceptions, as we say, the overall impression actually has been better than I would have expected. And I chalk that up not out of to any kind of brilliance on my part. I, I chalk a lot of it up to the brains of the people who've adopted the license. I've been really amazed by the conversations we've had, just kind of on first blush, uh, people who really have done their homework and read an awful lot of what I've written and what other people have written to come to an independent understanding of the terms. But the terms begin with a pretty straightforward explanation of what it is they're going to do. There's kind of a summary at the top of all the licenses from Licensero. And when people get over the initial fear of looking into the license file, and they read that, and they find that the style of the license overall is fairly approachable. I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm not going to say it's non-legal. But it's designed, it's written to be read and read by people who have not worked their brains with legal education, right? So being able to say, this is what the license means, and then someone saying, I'm not sure, actually being tempted into looking at the license text, finding out it's not that many paragraphs of markdown, and seeing a summary that confirms what they've been told, and being able to follow that into the specific rules and see how they play out. That surprised me. I thought we would have more trouble explaining this to hackers who are not lawyers and don't want to be. That being said, you know, maybe this is more statement of my you know, naivete at this point, or you know, there was a lot of that going into this. There's less of it now. But the amount of reaction of a kind of a, a higher level, how can I put this concretely? The amount of people who aren't interested in the project or in licensing it or in using it, frankly, who will show up in issues or even pull requests just nuking the license and replacing it with MIT has been surprising to me. And frankly, a little disappointing. The other issues that come up, I mean, are the real issues, the, the things that are actually hard to get right, which are all the questions about, okay, I have to share. Well, how much do I have to share? Or does this trigger the obligation to share? And some of those have resulted in changes to the license. We've got like, I think we're at parity version seven now. And a lot of that's been as a direct result of feedback from people who've adopted the license and brought me back things that I never would have seen on my own. So for example, the most recent version has an exception for reverse engineering. Let's say that you've built a uh, static analysis tool or uh, a decompiler, I, said, I would say would be the better example. You want to use that decompiler on a proprietary program. If you don't have the source code for it, 
if you get code for it, you can't share it. So are you, can you just not share back? That means you can't use the decompiler to begin with? Well, we probably don't want that, right? If you're going to decompile or reverse engineer a program to create an open alternative or to create an open clone, and there are issues around that, but in general, that's something we want. So now the license says that explicitly, you can do this. In general, no using this tool on code that you can't share. But if you're doing that in order to create something you can share, you're good. Um, so those I, have been the kind can I ask you a question about, about that? Like some of the pushback that we've been hearing about having, you know, new licenses, new open source licenses um, has to do with the complexity that we are creating by having all these multiple different licenses um, going around. And I think that the argument towards having like one, like a more kind of narrow definition of what is open source and what's not has to do with with that, with managing that complexity. What do you think about that? About like, you know, how much you are, or like having something like uh, License Zero is adding like complexity by having folks navigate different licenses or having to, making it harder to understand what exactly they can and can't do with a certain license. Is that something that you you folks are thinking about or what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. And it's certainly something that we hear about. I would say on the one hand, from the open source tradition, there's the concept of license proliferation, like nuclear proliferation. And this dates back to early days, the very earliest days of open source. And among some of the activists that were trying to establish that brand name, there was a real concern. There was a real sense of threat that the best way to undermine their initiative, their project, was to encourage hundreds of companies that wanted to get in on the open source bandwagon to roll their own terms. And this would essentially DOS the legal and non-legal capacity of the people they were trying to sell. There would be this just enormous menu of acronyms and license terms and version numbers, and you would have to be a full-time specialist to be fluent in all of those symbols and numbers and knowing what they mean. Right? And that this would simply make open source untenable as a simple proposition in people's minds, and then they couldn't accept it. On the other hand, we have had since, really since Creative Commons, this example of not evolving our way to a, a menu of licenses, but designing our way to a menu of licenses from the top down. So when you look at open source licenses, the broadly accepted ones, there's variation, right? There are the permissive licenses, MIT, BSD. There are the newer permissive licenses that address things like patent, that's Apache 2, most famously. Then there's the whole copyleft tradition, version 1, version 2, version 3, and now it comes in several flavors. You have the Afero GPL, AGPL, you have LGPL, and you have licenses in that category like the Mozilla public license, the Eclipse public license. So there's, there's going to be different items on that menu, right? These licenses have different effects and they're used for different reasons, but we evolved our way to all those options. And as a process of that evolution, we ended up with a lot of synonyms, licenses that basically do nearly the same thing, or sometimes arguably exactly the same thing, or licenses that are so close that we say, well, is it really worth it on the receiving end to have one more name and number to, to have to memorize and think about to, give, to make it possible to standardize this tiny little variation? You look at Creative Commons and they had the benefit of hindsight, right? They looked at what was going on in the open licensing space and outside it and said, okay, well, you want one that gives you credit. You want one that requires sharing alike. You want one that says, don't make any changes. 
You want one that's non-commercial and you want some combinations of all those things, right? And so they offered a full menu. And what do you want? Which Creative Commons license do you choose? Uh, or which, let's say, artwork license do you choose if you just want attribution, you just want credit? Well, that's CC BY, right? What if you don't want it used in a non-commercial setting? Well, that's CC BY and C, right? Non- the non-commercial license. But if you want to allow commercial use, but you want everybody to share their work alike, well, that's CC BY SA, share alike, right? So it's much cleaner in that sense. Which Creative Commons license is it? <laughs> right? As opposed to, is it MIT, BSD, Apache, MPL, EPL? This kind of alphabet soup of other options. So how do I approach this? That's all background, right? I don't fear license experimentation. I think some of my critics would say that's an understatement. When someone comes to me and they, or when multiple people especially come to me independently and say, hey, is there a license like this? You sure could use one. And I have to tell them that there isn't. And I end up with six people. I've, I've had to tell there isn't one. I'm tempted to write it in to show it to them and see if they'll adopt it, see if they'll feedback, see if we can get that cycle started. With licensure in particular, I think it's important to distinguish license proliferation claims that are based on any new licenses at all and license proliferation objections that object to licenses that do what existing licenses already do. So it's one thing to roll up and say, well, here's basically a new version of the Apache license, but I've used the British spellings instead of the American ones, right? Or I've rolled up and I've rewritten the MIT license in simpler terms in, let's say, simple English, which is a restricted subset of English that's easier for people to learn and understand, right? Well, an objection to those licenses might be, well, we already have that. (laughs) We already have something that does that, and it's well-established. And in the kind of mental dictionaries of the people who have to care about these licenses, we've already got an entry for that. And now you're adding another one. So you're burdening those people without offering any new kind of functionality. Parity doesn't have that problem because it's doing something that I think even the people who wouldn't want to see it approved or, or wouldn't recommend its use or would strongly you know, discourage it even, I think that they would admit that it does something new. It, it takes copyleft or share alike to a new place. And it's a valid place. It's a place where a lot of work is getting done. So I really appreciate how eloquent and slow and clear you're being. It's absolutely wonderful. I want to get back to something at the very beginning where you said that it's possible that the situation might be untenable, or I think you said insoluble. You posted on your blog recently, the cursed, the curse of sustainability. This is on the license zero blog, not your personal one, where you talked about the metaphors we use and how it's possible that it's just impossible to fix the open source problem. Could you talk a bit more about that? So I'm not sure that it's an open source problem, first and foremost. And depending on who you ask, it's not a problem or not at all. What I was getting at, and I think the reason that I don't necessarily believe that licensing is essential to get us to a better place, I think it may be very useful. But the reason I think it's relevant at all is really that we have a fundamental disconnect in expectation. And it's not just a disconnect in expectations between people who make this software and people who use it. Or I should rather say people when they're making soft, open software and when they're using open software. I, for one, have caught myself behaving badly going into other people's repos after dealing with issues in a very unwelcome and unfriendly way on my own, right? You know, kicking the dog, so to speak, but the dog is other people that I want to get along with. I think the reason that it seems necessary to me is that there's not just 
what producers want, what consumers want, there's kind of what reality will bear. And there's a certain amount of coordination and engineering from the top that we can do about how we work on software. And there's a certain part that is just going to emerge from the basic decisions that each of us make every day. And so if the expectation is open source will be there when I need it, if I take the time to search for a library, it's going to be there and it's going to be licensed in this way. And if I find a problem with it, or even if I find a feature for it that it should have, and I roll up into somebody's issues with that, it's going to get attention. It's going to get done, maybe. Maybe even it's going to get done on a reasonable time frame. That doesn't necessarily square with reality on the other side or expectations on the other side, which is, hey, wait a minute, I took the time to do this. I could have kept it to myself. I didn't. Maybe I even took the additional step of licensing it so you could do whatever you want. Literally, here's the MIT license. It says, do what you want. I'm not responsible. You have all the tools you need to take care of yourself. And that's what you're going to have to do. And then you have people coming back expecting more work from you. Or you feel it creeping up, right? What becomes a, what started as a hobby project or just an output of work that you were inspired to do becomes this kind of wheel that you have to roll up the hill every time someone hits your or mentions you in a, in a repo, right? So it's worth stepping back and saying, is there a fundamental conflict? Is there an inconsistency between what people are bringing expectation-wise into what we call open source? And given the environment that they're in, an environment which includes things like necessity for most people to pay rent or mortgage, you know, a desire to buy the things of life that enable programming, among other things, are we setting ourselves up to fail with by taking assumptions or premises or putting equations into the system that we just can't solve together. And so, Richard, that blog post in particular was inspired by me doing more and more research and reading in other fields. I love reading about these problems, none of which are specific to software open source, as they've cropped up in other creative domains. And one of those domains is, strangely enough, also software, but it's games, which has a strange kind of independent existence socially, industry-wise, and otherwise, I find, and certainly in its relationship to what we call open source. And there is a lot of really necessary professional thinking about incentive structures, game design in that industry. There has to be. That's their industry. And so I'd watched a talk, I wish I could remember the speaker's name now, where he essentially defined this, this term, a cursed problem, which is a problem not in the way that you've made the game. It's, it's a conflict between kind of what you've promised the players or what you've led them to expect that they can, they can experience through the game and what you can actually deliver. And if you set yourself up for a conflict there, there's no way of solving it by tweaking little things within the game. You need to go back to the level where you're setting expectations or you're designing the game at a high level in order to avoid that kind of conflict. So this speaks back to you know, I, I try to say these things in different ways. I try to walk the same path slightly differently over and over again to, to catch the details and hold my, my own thinking accountable on these things. But if I had to do a personal callback on that blog post, I would say it points back to some prior writing that I've done on this idea of withholding, which is if you want something from your users or customers, however you conceptualize them, you need something to give them when they pay. You need to hold something back. If open source literally means everything about software, it's not just source code and the license anymore. It's availability, literally an SLA for support requests on a IRC or a Slack channel, right? It's 
a turnaround time on pull request review. It's all of these things that go into software maintenance and support that didn't really used to be a part of open source expectations. If it just means everything, it's literally the full job of making software is open source, except you get it for free. You're not going to have anything to sell or to offer or to trade. And you're going to end up in a situation where all you can do is ask for alms, right? All you can do is ask for donations. Because even if they would pay you for something, you don't have something to get back. So if the expectations we bring into open source set us up for that kind of problem, then we need to step back, I think, and look at the problem from a higher level. Not, well, can we tweak GitHub a little bit to, to avoid this problem? Or you know, can we tweak our contr- contributing.md file to mention a fundraising mechanism or something like that? It's a higher level problem and it may require a higher level solution. Does that answer your question, Richard? It does. Thank you so much. Gunnar, I, I wanted to ask you, did you have any questions for Kyle? Sure. The one that's rambling around in my head, and you know, I'm, I'm not trolling you to say controversial things, but we've talked a lot about the what of licensing, and I wonder if you would share your thoughts on the who. In my own travels, I often make a clumsy generalization about you know, the GPL versus the open sort of stakeholder groups. I'm curious how in your work, I think you're doing so much more nuanced work in licensing and engaging a much more, much broader and more diverse set of stakeholders. Do you think of personas in the licensing world in terms of how people have affinities for different uh, sort of levels of permissiveness and non-permissiveness on the spectrum? Do you have ways in which you have developed pattern language for the peoples associated with the languages, the communities, the stakeholder types? So first and foremost, nobody sees all of open source. Nobody sees all of software. That, that includes me, right? I like to think that I have a little bit more of a, of a diverse view because I get airlifted in to work with different clients, right? In the same way that as an independent contractor or designer or other independent professional, or maybe if you work for a small studio, you have a variety of client relationships and projects over time. And that kind of forces you to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise, right? Now, there's counterbalancing forces there, right? We, we tend to get known in specific areas or specialized, but Overall, I feel like I have a fairly broad view, but I cannot ever pretend that that's the whole universe. But you mentioned kind of this idea of personas, and I I guess I could take that in two directions. One is kind of more of the policy or the fan club level, like which licenses do I support? Which licenses do I want to see rise? Which ones do I want to see fall? So there was a recent blog post, which I'm not, well, I'm about to feed the fire here, but not that I really want to, that I think came out from the white source group, which is a kind of a license analysis management vendor. And they plotted this graph. I'm not sure you know, which of the axes were labeled, but it was basically showing, hey, permissive licenses are growing or permissively licensed projects are growing and copyleft is, is diminishing, at least as a percentage of the whole. And there's a reason that that title, or the, I can't remember exactly what the title of that post was, I mean, that's super narrow, nerdy, geeky stuff, right? Permissive versus copyleft, open, public software license. I mean, what kind of constituency? How could that ever be clickbait, right? Well, it is. And it's because there are people who have affinities or really identities with different camps. And I don't know that we want to get into the whole history of that politics. And some of it I wasn't there for firsthand, so I'm, I'm maybe not the best one to tell those stories. But one of the issues that came up in, in my mind with submitting parity or the license that became parity to OSI 
the open source initiative, for example, was that I do get the sense that there are folks who just really see copyleft as deprecated or wish that it were. And that's not a new phenomenon. That's been in open or free software longer than I have, right? So there are constituencies that ideologically or practically or strategically or frankly, financially, there are people who have an interest in this as a business, right? Want to see more of this or less of that or this at the expense of that. And oftentimes that cleavage line is copyleft versus permissive, right? So give us another license that's permissive. Uh, that's fine. I, I wrote one of those two, incidentally, or I co-wrote one of, of the Blue Oak model license, but not so much on the copyleft side. That's dangerous. It produces these combinatoric complexities that we don't want. More generally speaking, we just think it's not necessary anymore, right? Seeing GPL and that tradition as more of a catalyst that got us to open source. So now that we've got there, well, we don't want to kick those people to the curb, or maybe we do, but we don't need them like we needed them when GPL was the most important and the most popular license in free and open software on the internet, right? But to go to your question of personas on the kind of person who is choosing a license or company who is choosing license side, oh yeah, man, got to do it. I sometimes joke, and mostly with lawyers, not necessarily with clients, although some of them may hear this, that borderline schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder, not as it known clinically, but kind of literally as we see it in cartoons, is in some extent necessary to be a good lawyer. Uh, you have to be able to role play other people. And you need a kind of cast of characters in the back of your mind that you can run through. One of the things that the organization that published the Blue Oak Model License, Blue Oak Council, which I'm a part of, published recently, was a list of essentially a test suite list of projects, famous projects of different kinds that have different aspects of software, right? A compiler versus a library versus a framework versus a developer tool. And we, we gave representative projects to, that we kind of know by name. And we published that list because many of us who do analyze licenses have those lists already. We just hadn't compiled them and improved them together. And so those are literally projects where we'll, you know, we'll be looking at a new license or an old license, and we'll run through each of those projects and role play it. Hey, would this license work for me? What would be the implications? What would be the business model, strategic implications? What would be the effect on contribution that we would expect? And so on. So it's not so much, uh, Gunner, that I have, you know, kind of six different colored hats to think with, if you want to go back to that, or that I have a kind of completely made up people that I think about as I'm reading or reviewing or, or commenting on a license. It's really the history of people that I've known or worked for over time. And some of those people, or companies aren't ones that I've actually represented. Some of them I've actually been across from, but they become touch points, you know, in the same way that if we have all watched Game of Thrones in the last 12 months, then those characters become a kind of vocabulary we can use to talk about political or personal issues, right? If we were Russian school children and we'd all been made to read War and Peace, then we would have those characters that we could allude to and compare to and talk to um, or talk through rather in conversations that have nothing to do with literature or, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. So my client history and my work history and some of the people that I've become friends with or worked with that couldn't be my clients or that I couldn't serve, serve for me as that kind of cast of characters. And I will run through a license or, frankly, other legal terms with them in mind as a kind of a test suite. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's super fascinating. Thank you so much. And 
I look forward to discussing further over pupusas and the mission when we're allowed to do that again. Well, that could be quite a while. I, I would say just a random, a random name drop. If you don't know the author, Fernando Pessoa, who I believe was from Portugal and uh, kind of an existentialist of that ilk, although they all seem to deny that when they were alive, wrote an interesting series of kind of scrap sketches and short stories that I think he wanted burned posthumously, but someone saved and they've now been published. He had the idea of heteronyms, which wasn't original to him, but he did it in a fantastic way. He would invent different personalities and write as those personalities. And it, he was a multilingual person, so there were personalities with different languages and you know, across genders and different social stations and whatnot. And that's probably a healthier way to talk about what we just discussed, right? And that applies, I mean, you can make this as general as you want, right? Whether it's user stories for an application or thinking about the people who are going to be affected by a policy change or looking at the users and the potential consumers of a software license. Having that flexibility and really that creativity just pays enormous dividends when you really get down to the weeds of something. Thank you so much. I hadn't heard of Pessoa. I'm looking forward to it. That We really don't have a lot more time. So I just want to say thank you so much and then go on to the spotlights, if that's all right. Pia, what's your spotlight this week? So my spotlight is not technical this week. It's not a software project, but it's a collective I would like to highlight. It's called Mills of Gratitude. And it's folks giving donations to send meals to health workers in the front lines. So yeah, if you want to support that effort, is opencollective.com slash meals of gratitude. Thank you, Pia. That's awesome. Justin. I'm actually going to donate my space or my time to you, Richard, to talk about FOSS Responders. FOSS Responders is a collaboration that's happened over the past couple of weeks with me and Dwayne from Indeed and Megan from Google and all sorts of other people, Gunner as well from Aspiration. And what we're trying to do is build a safety network for open source developers and open source projects, which are really suffering right now as coronavirus hits particularly in the event space when they bought tickets somewhere and then they got canceled, not refunded, and people are losing money. Go to fossresponders.com, that's FOSS with two S's, to learn more. And thank you so much, Justin. That was actually going to be my spotlight as well. So could, given I pig- that that- could I piggyback then? I'm sorry. Sure. So I just noticed something. This is in the 15 minutes before I, I dialed into the call, which is I think there is something ongoing called Bandcamp Day. Bandcamp is an online store for uh, music, musicians, mostly recordings. And I think that they waived all of their commission on sales on the platform today. And it almost brought their site down. And it was as a, you know, really as a gesture of support for the musicians that can't earn by touring, selling tickets, selling merch at the table outside the concert where everybody's still excited anymore. And it, it irked me that there really wasn't anything like that, that we could just flip a switch and say, okay, this is now a way to support the people that are hurting in software. So I'm really happy to hear that you're, you're doing something in that direction. I just got to quickly add to that. Day by day, I'm starting to see a silver lightning. At first, I was like, this is unbelievably horrible. But thank you for sharing that because that makes me feel really, really good. That does. Uh, Open Collective is also contributing back all the funds which it would normally take for those transactions. So it is free. Go to fosterspiners.com. Eric, do you have a spotlight today? 
You know what? With with everything said and with everything going on in the world, I, I, I don't think I have anything to add that would be better than what's already been shared. Gunner? Yeah, I'll continue to hack the format and build on that, which has already been said. But I, I feel like <laughs> in, in calling out false responders, I just want to double down and really just celebrate Dwayne O'Brien, who I think is known yeah. here. But yes. Dwayne embodies, you know, you know, you said earlier, Kyle, you were talking about people that can be multiple personas. The thing that I'm amazed with Dwayne is that as he's spun up this Foss Responders project, he's holding so many different communities with uh, integrity. And so he's doing his job for Indeed, but he's walking just 100% of what I consider to be free and open source integrity. He's really being mindful of different communities and their different cultures. And I just feel like in, in this time of crisis, we, we need cloning to get you know done so that with Dwayne's opt-in permission, we can have more Dwayne's in this world. But big love to that man. I just feel like he is set an example we all need to follow. I completely is, uh, agree with that. Yeah. This is mo- motorcycles and uh, jumpsuit, Dwayne? Yep. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, I saw him out of uniform. I saw him out of what? uniform. Yes. He Wait a did minute. did not know I saw him, but I saw him out of uniform. It was a Batman, <laughs> was a Batman oh. at the mall moment. Oh, my God. We're still overdue for a, a motorcycle trip, but that's on, uh, that's on hiatus, too. I, I guess... To reestablish the format, I can give an actual project if you'd like, as lame as that now feels. I was just going to do a quick shout out to Nick Craig Wood, who writes the R-Clone command line application, which is basically like R-Sync for all of the cloud storage services. So it'll do stuff across Dropbox, S3, Drive, all the things. I've almost forgotten to mention it because I find that I've just scripted it so deep into my life that I no longer run R-Clone directly. But it's become part of my, well, God help me and God help Nick, my infrastructure. So I wanted to make the extra effort to call that out. That's what this is for. Thank you so much. I wanted to just say that like Dwayne, you are actually one of my favorite people. I love hearing you talk and I could gladly do that for a long time. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. That's mildly disturbing, but thanks, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) For people who would like to know more about what you do and where your words exist, where can they follow you on the web? Oh, man. Well, I am systematically reducing those places. I I have a Twitter bot that tweets my blog. The blog is writing.kemitchell.com. When I get a wild hair, that's usually where the results end up. Everyone should feel free to reach out to me anytime. Email is usually best, but you know, especially now, who doesn't want to call, right? Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks again for being on this podcast. That's it for today. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.